Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. Hey, this is Dre, and welcome to Posse of the People. In this episode, it's me, D.R., Kaya, and Miles talking about the news that you don't know from the past week, the underreported news. And this week, we even focus a little on Beyonce. And then I sit down and talk to Professor Robin Kelly to talk about his new book, Freedom Dreams, The Black Radical Imagination. We talk about his work as a Black historian, his experience documenting the ongoing struggle for Black liberation, and I learned a lot. There were pieces of history in this book that I was like, you, I wish I had read this during the protest. Here we go. My advice for this week is to try and find those historical pieces about liberation. I learned so much in Professor Kelly's book Uh, the way that other activists long before I was even somebody's dream or idea uh, have fought. And so much of it I wish I had learned earlier, but all of it comes in due time. So I'd say pick a piece of history and learn that as my advice for this week. Here we go. Family, welcome to another episode of Pod Save the People. I am Diara Ballinger. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Diara Ballinger. I'm Milesy Johnson. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Feral Rapture. I'm Kaya Henderson. You can find me on Twitter at Henderson Kaya. And this is Duray at D-R-A-Y on Twitter. <sighs> She's done it again. Boom, boom, boom. She has boom, boom. done it again. I'm trying to do. I'm trying to do. Beyonce, I'm trying to do little disco no Carter. <laughs> boom, boom. <laughs> Renaissance. It's spectacular. It's amazing. It's all the things. There's, there's every type of version of house music while paying homage to all the people that you need to pay homage to, with the house music. I saw beautiful tribute to her, her uncle um, Johnny, who I then just started going to deep hold about on everybody everybody's instagram that posted him but anyway just what what are our thoughts about beyonce about this album about the phenomenal the queen the bee um i'm really into it i i I wish that i was home in the states though because i feel like it would be everywhere and it's not quite everywhere yet in europe but hopefully that that'll change when i get to countries that have substantial black populations well there's nowhere substantial here with the black population but you know what i mean musical genius <laughs> Br- <laughs> like a brilliant what like i love beyonce because i love black artists in general like if you're black and you're an artist i'm usually on your side until you mess up but and I'm like usually really warm and protective, but Beyonce, she she's so talented that it kind of makes me mad sometimes. I'm like, why would you do that? Why don't like, <laughs> she's hitting runs and hitting notes? I'm like, why would you go and do that like that and say that? And it's just like she has this intuitive gift. Of course, she can sing. Of course, she can 
she has good song selection and stuff like that, but she has this beautiful, intuitive gift just to know what a song needs. Because, of course, when you heard the lyrics on Move, you needed to tap Grace Jones. And, of course, after Heated, you needed to go and go in a full, like, Vogue ballroom chant. And I'm like, because it's, it's like, of course, like, the, the, the bare technique talent is there. But that intuitive gift to say, now, this is going to get you mad. This is what's going to get them up out of their seats. And... Being in New York and being in my 30s and going to my friend's house the day before yesterday that turned into yesterday child because... Because it was a Beyonce people, listening party? Because queer, <laughs> queer people do not know when to go to bed when Beyonce's <laughs> on. <laughs> they don't know when to stop. <laughs> um, but it was just... it was. I felt so blessed to be able to enjoy this music um, with my Black... Uh, trans and queer friends and we got to like dance together and drink and you know yeah it was just a really beautiful heartwarming time to be in like an intimate environment with them experiencing this music and it just felt like for us because I feel like Beyonce's always gave us like a wink wink and a nudge nudge but t- but today she said well, well hold on she just paint. She just she 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 she, she just took the rainbow flag out and she, it was, and she said, "I'm here, I'm here, I'm here." And it felt and it felt really good. Just genius, 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 genius body of work. Um, I I love it so far. I'm a '70s baby, and so grew up in the disco era. And it evokes Sylvester from me. It evokes clearly Grace Jones, right? And that's the kind of stuff that, like, you don't hear much. And then I was a teenager during the house years. And so I was running downtown to all kinds of places, the Latin Quarter, the Underground, all kinds of places, um, the shelter, the, ah, I'm a little too young for the parents. Let them know you've been there. I've been there. I'm a little there. Um, And so all of that, right, was like very nostalgic for me. But this felt so like the the songs feel like freedom to me. Right. Like it is Mm -hmm. wild abandon. It is, you know, I feel like effing something up. It is like let it go, set it free. And I feel like we are at a moment in our history, our culture or whatever where like this pressure cooker is about to explode and she is inviting us to let it go and set it free before it gets jiggy out here. And I feel like we need, this is, I'm only sad that it didn't come out a little earlier this summer because we needed a whole summer full of this, right? Um, We need all of this, all of it. I'm of the mind that you you need to put out some dance music and some sweat music actually going into the winter. That's when the depression hits. Okay. So you need you, that's what so you need something to kind of get you get you through that too. I um what I love about Beyonce is that as much as we joke about her being a hermit and not doing interviews and not talking to people and not being at events, it is so cool because you can tell that she's not riding the wave of what is trendy or what is hot in the moment or what the TikTok thing is. She's saying like this is what I believe, this is what I feel, and this is what I think music is and should be, and this is where I think music should go. And I love that about her. I love that about her art. You know, it's so fun to... Some of the people that I saw commenting on it were like, I guess Beyonce's a rapper now again. And you're like, Beyonce's whatever she wants to be, right? Um, and I thought that was great. The, the thing that made me teary was 
it was in the first announcement being like, this is dedicated to our godmother, Uncle Johnny. You were like, okay, who's Uncle Johnny? Godmother, you're like, we we by the get so that was before the album come up, comes out. The album comes out, and then Miss Tina posted a note about Uncle Johnny being her best friend, her ride or die, made Beyonce's prom dress. Beyonce gave the shout out to Uncle Johnny at the end of one of the songs. Uh, Bevy, if you know Bevy, Bevy posted herself in one of the Uncle Johnny dresses. And it was such a beautiful ode to uh, Uncle Johnny and then all of the Black gay men that we lost to HIV and AIDS in that era who who helped define a culture, who did so many incredible things, who were the artists and the culture keepers and the uncles and the aunties, uh, and, and we lost them. And I, I felt like this was uh, an homage to them as well. And and reading Miss Tina's post was like a, it was like a remembrance uh, to me in that way. So yeah, staying on the Beyonce theme, and also just because this gave me so much joy, like even thinking about it and talking about it, I'm getting chills all over again. But one of, also like want to know like who, is Beyonce her own researcher? Does she have researchers in-house that work for her? Because how did she find uh, this YouTube of Dr. Barbara Antier, who is the founder of National Black Theater? And we talk about, we've talked about National Black Theater before, based in Harlem, currently run now by Dr. Tier's daughter, Sade Livkoff. Um, and, and in the context, most recently we talked about National Black Theater is that they, you know, they are in co-production at the public now with, with Fat Ham. That's fun Pulitzer. It's amazing, all the things. But it, but what Beyonce did was sample some of this talk that Dr. Barbara Antier was doing that's on YouTube. And so she she basically pulled her um she she pulled a sample of her speech um and this is in the song alien superstar and it's the words we dress a certain way we walk a certain way we talk a certain way we pay a certain way we make love a certain way you know all of these things we do in a different unique specific way that is personally ours um and so when i heard those words i was like well when i heard her voice i was like oh my gosh that voice sounds so familiar and it was kind of you know egging on me. Egg on, I was kept thinking about it. And then I was like, you know who that is? That is Sade's mama. And which is just wild. Like the legacy of Dr. Barbara Antier in terms of Black culture, preserving Black culture, protecting Black culture, but also protecting Black love, radical Black love and Black bodies. And the fact that Beyonce has done this repeatedly with her music um, and now has kind of... <laughs> directly paid homage to this incredible, incredible woman who did so much to shape Black theater. It just is completely overwhelming, y'all. This is our friend's mama on Beyonce's song. So I was just so happy and pleased to, to, to hear this and, you know, just continued love and support to National Black Theater. And if y'all don't know about them, get to know them. No, and that's like one of the best, like all the songs are great, but I think Alien Superstar is one of those songs that like everybody agreed was like a fantastic song and I love that Beyonce child I'm so and I love the woman who I'm about to name but I am so tired of people uh trying to deepen their songs and like using the same Nina Simone no fear quote and the same uh Toni Morrison quote I'm so glad that Beyonce's like you know what (laughs) Miles (laughs) 
there's some more people who said some more things, and th- that makes me happy that she and, and people who are um, living too. T. S. Madison, of course, is, was um, also uh, used inside of inside of the album too. It makes me it makes me happy. So because I love uh, uh, I, I love I love critical thought. And I've been like this. I've been like this since I've, well, definitely known y'all, but DeRay probably knows this the most about me, is I love loving something and, like, taming my love of something by being objective. And <laughs> I, don't, I, just, I just feel like it, like, keeps me grounded. Um, but anywho, uh, Khalees. One of my, fa- I love Khalees, first of all. Khalees, when it comes to R&B innovation, when it comes to style innovation, when it comes to performance innovation, um, she is just really one of those artists that opened the doors for a specific type of expression um, and a specific type of uh, maneuvering through uh, like uh, the, the industry. Um, of course, I think of caught out there and her screaming on the track and her having such punk and um and and funk influences in her music and then of course i also think about even like songs like bossy that kind of were the the first um echoes of that kind of trap and b raps sound that came out and even when you look at um reviews of oh i'm such a geek but even when you look at reviews of gwen stefani's um love angel music baby and fergie's um the duchess album um kalisa's tasty album which had milkshake on it was noted as the first album to be that kind of retro talky flirty pop moment that a lot of people were using as um y- using as the blueprint for their albums including getting the um getting producers like the Neptunes uh, to to recreate those albums or those sounds for her. And even Ariana Grande with Sweetener has revisited that sound and noted Khaleesi's, um, Khaleesi's uh, reference point for that. Um, so I say all to say is Khaleesi has definitely, definitely, definitely added a lot to the culture. And uh, Khaleesi got on the Instagram, she got real mad and she got upset and she basically said, you know... I, uh, Beyonce and Pharrell took my song, took my song, and I didn't get the courtesy of getting to know I, to getting that I did not get the courtesy of knowing that my song was going to be used in this album. Um, and of course, she lets us know that she doesn't own her masters, so technically nothing illegal happens. However, she feels as because they are both peers and. Um, They've known each other, and they and they know, and they're they run in, in similar uh, circles and 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 whatnot. That that courtesy felt more like a dig. And then what you know, I'm I'm a I'm a I'm a I'm a deep listener. And also, she says that she feels as though uh, Pharrell purposefully used that sample of Milkshake as a dig to Khalees as well, which made me feel. Listen, you can never, this is such a perspective thing, you know, and I don't know if, like, that just feels really vindictive for, um, for Beyonce, and, you know, I don't think my fandom will ever let me see Beyonce as purposely doing that, but not as big as a fan of Pharrell, so I can see him doing it, (laughs) and I, and I'm, and... I really get sad about Khalees, and I don't know how loud she has to yell because she yelled really loud with her interview about Nas uh, and about her 
getting physically abused about Nas. And it just feels like that didn't shake anything. And she's been really vocal about the Neptunes and her being exploited as a young teenage girl when it comes to her contracts. And that didn't shake anything. And now what I'm hearing her say is there's this person who is presented as a certain way who does things publicly in order to um, torment her via via these moments because of um, a background in them dating and and them having a little bit of jealousy and 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 personal things happening and this is a way that he maneuvers publicly in order to hurt Kalisa's feelings and I think my conclusion is I think that I I, I I know it probably won't happen because Beyonce just doesn't have the break. She's this is not where she's at apparently of talking back to people. But I would love for her to have extended or corrected this with Khalees. I think it would have been so powerful. And I do think because we talked about um, Beyonce now having this um, Me Too, like in order for you to be on her um, albums, you have to like clear this like Me Too process now and all this other stuff. And I and I think that you know this is a a, a moment to really exercise and to really be an example of the empowerment that that you that that you're behind and um yeah it's a weird story it's obviously it was like one of the bigger controversial things and again you can't really come to any conclusions about it it's really all just like your opinions of what you would want to happen but also i think that it's just interesting to me that cleesis is one of those voices who's super influential but when it comes to her talking about some of the biggest men in hip-hop she just seems to not be able to get any friction on people caring in a in a in a in a, in a soulful way I hadn't remembered actually the whole moment of Khalees talking about Nas. Like I remember it now when you brought it up. I was like, that was it. That was a moment. But you're right, it didn't have an impact. And I I find it hard to believe that Beyonce would do this intentionally, just because like, you know, she put everybody name. If you breathed on the track, you on a line, you know, like it 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 gives very no drama, don't want no drama. I know I'm good at what I do. So it is unfortunate that it became this. What I will say about Khalees and um, my my friend who was once my college classmate, Venus X, who helped uh, who helped with the the house scene in New York and ghetto gothic and all that stuff, uh, she made a couple posts about it too, and it was a reminder of like shout out to the weird kids, shout out to the the counterculture, the like the kids throwing parties in the basements, in the weird scenes and the dark lights and the da 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 because they become the people that shaped the things later. And I remember when Khalees was like the bizarre, weird, like, who's that girl? They don't do that on TV. And she was and she was that girl um, for a lot of people. It helped to popularize that music. And I think that that is what the album also is an homage to. Is you know, So many people uh, that were icons in like ballroom or house, like these, these scenes that were underground in the mainstream world uh, for a while, or voices that weren't seen as so prominent. Um, and they got they got leverage here. I am hopeful too that her and Beyonce can have a conversation. Um, I need to do more research on the Neptunes and Pharrell and that whole backstory. And I will say something about Dr. Tear. When I heard that that message um, from Dr. Tear on the album, DR2, it was like, who was up in the middle of the night on YouTube? Like, what were y'all typing? Black people, positive, old messages? You know, like, they that was a deep cut message of Dr. Tear to find, you know? So I, I appreciate that. And Maz, I think you're right, is that we we hear the same four quotes 
over and over and over or a little picture of her top and you're like, okay, okay, we get it, we get it. You listen during Black History Month in middle school too. And this is a reminder that art can do different things. I love SZA's post. Did you see SZA's post was like, got me rethinking my whole everything. And you're like, yes, SZA. And what SZA said, uh, just so, I, so everybody knows, me rethinking my entire creative process after being free from monotonous sonic bondage by Beyonce. <laughs> yeah, that's what it should. That's what really it should do. Because child, the, the, how people are afraid of making albums. But since it's really good, like I loved Control. I think it was one of the better R&B albums of like the last few years. But I hope a lot of people feel embarrassed <laughs> about putting out music after this. That wasn't because what I thought you were gonna say. No, because I think because the, the music's so fun and so sassy, right? And it's so like, and it's sexy, and it's all these different things. And I think that like it also shows you could be all those different things and have fun and still respect the craft of making music. And I think that there's been some uh, musical integrity that has gone to the wayside for people who have a lot of access to make really great music if they just boom. Kai, what you got? I loved, I mean, I, like I said before, this, it feels like freedom, but like it also, it feels like blackness, right? Like all aspects of blackness. There's some church, there's some trap, there's some like old, there's some new, there's like all of us in all of our glory. And I think that the, that the Barbara Ann Tear quote is so beautiful because it just captures, like, I mean, Dre, the the thing that you say all the time that I absolutely love is, I love my blackness and yours. Like, I love being black. And this quote just says it all, right? Like, we do everything blackity black. And that's what makes us alien superstars. And I, like, just the whole concept, like, you know, I'm obsessed with teaching young people that, like, we are magnificent, not this trope that, you know, we're lazy, we're poor, we're blah, blah, blah. Like, we are overcomers, we are resilient, we are joyful, we are brilliant, we have done all of these things. And I think the spirit of that is what is caught up in this album for me. And we're a little messy too, right? Like, and so, of course, there's going to be some family feuding because it wouldn't be Black if there wasn't some family feuding. So, uh, so to me, all of this just continues to encapsulate and, and signify like Blackness in all of our dimensions. And I'm here for it all. Just the last thing I'll say on the Kellis piece is that what is interesting to me is that she is not credited on this iconic song. She was 24 years old when she made it. It's one of the most licensed songs ever. What was happening in that paperwork with Pharrell, with, I forget the, I mean, it was Ch Star Trek Chad Hugo, Entertainment. The Neptune. Chad Hugo. Yeah. And I think she was on like Arista or something. But anyway, she didn't make any money off a of milkshake except for touring. But you, I mean, so you I think know how that this is, goes. I think it's less. That's not, that's not odd. That's not, I know. right? Like yep. that is actually standard for young black folks in the music industry. And sometimes it's our own folks who do it to us. Ask, I mean. I mean, I just never thought of Pharrell 
as Puff Daddy. <laughs> really breaking my heart. Can't stop, won't stop. Breaking my heart. I mean, all in the video, all in, all in the videos. Yeah, no, I think that's what was sad about it too. Because Diddy was a little bit of a like, oh, I'm from Harlem. You already know what time it is. Like it's right. sad, but whatever. When you hear but rumors, you, you didn't expect Virginia Beach or Norfolk, whatever. And I'm like, I'm like, I'm like. <laughs> I mean, the tickets like, to that concert in DC were three hundred dollars each. Oof, but you, I mean, but that, you, but you cried with Oprah, and 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 talk about manifesting and the power of positive thinking. I'm like, well, well, hold he on. Manifested, he manifested you a whole lot of coins right out from under Kelly's. I'm like, you ain't never have a have a meditation session that said give that money back because I think that's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> that's the that will be that's that's the thing. <laughs> Seriously, I'm like okay. Homegirl living on a farm outside of LA. What's the what's really? I'm like, but but I also just think that like yes, it's very like the music business is full of sharks and full of bad contracts, and I think I love that black people are getting uh, more power in that business. It makes me really sad when black people decide just to be a vehicle to. Do the same thing that would have been done, that been done to us because I think what would be a super radical thing, and I know it's hard, but I think it would be so dope to for Kalisa have said that and Pharrell to be like, you know what, I like I'm not doing this anymore, and and to do something in help of Kalisa and to really do it, and even though she might be mad, even though she might be like, it took you long enough or whatever she does, it would be so cool to see an example of somebody saying, yeah, this is the standard, but actually, here's your stuff back. In the same way, when I think about how Chance the Rapper helped Anita, Anita Baker, Baker get her license back, like why, like, why not just be like, you know what, I've grown, whatever the excuses or the reason is, and here's me doing the right thing. I think that would be just utterly powerful. And, and you know, my, 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 my Monique Netflix bone is tingling <laughs> around <laughs> around <laughs> <laughs> I, I would like to see it this did make me think of monique when i was like i was like i know miles i can hear it already the speech oh my goodness here it is you already know an underdog black woman who's loud and angry oh gosh <laughs> you got a friend and a cot in me <laughs> if you ever need a pallet in a meal come to me <laughs> Don't go anywhere. More Politic the People's coming. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. My news this week is about the continued dismantling of the education, public education system that is happening all over the United States. It is really astounding to watch every week some new news story that talks about what I think is sheer madness um, around what is happening in public education. And this week's craziness comes from the state of Oklahoma. 
um, and deal specifically with Tulsa Public Schools, which is probably one of the most diverse districts in um, Oklahoma, and another district called Mustang Public Schools near Oklahoma City. And both of these um, districts were basically reprimanded by the Oklahoma State Board of Education, who voted this week to downgrade the accreditation of these two school systems um, to accredited with warning. So uh, you could be accredited, you could be accredited with deficiency, you could be accredited with warning, and then I guess whatever else after that is, you are unaccredited. Um, But the reason that these two school districts were downgraded is because um, the governor passed, the governor and state legislature um, last May uh, passed House Bill number 1775, which restricts discussions of race and sex in public schools. It's one of these pieces of legislation targeting critical race theory. And a teacher in Tulsa Public Schools raised her hand and said, I went to a training. The training was 20 minutes um, and it was about implicit bias. And she says she went to a training that felt like it was shaming white people, made her feel badly. And uh, and she complained to the state. And that one teacher complaint resulted in the school district's accreditation being downgraded. Mustang Public Schools is even more curious. They were like, oh, oops, our bad. We had a training that we think, you know, didn't actually follow the law. And we're calling you to tell you, like, we recognize this. We're going to do something better. They were like, yeah, uh, downgrade for you, too. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Your storytelling, Kaya, is the best. I I mean, I'm I'm so appalled. Like, literally one teacher can call and imperil an entire public school system. Meanwhile, a teacher who called the police on the people, she was investigated earlier this year for proselytizing in class. She also ran for the state Senate. I guess she didn't um, win. Um, On her campaign website, she said that as as a Tulsa Public Schools teacher, she has witnessed spiritually damaging programs, liberal brainwashing, and political indoctrination being slipped into our schools. So clearly, this is a teacher with an agenda, right? I'm not saying it's right, wrong, or otherwise, but it's a teacher with an agenda who, as a result of attending this 20-minute training, got the whole school district downgraded. Um, And... The State Board of Education uh, feels like it's really important to send a message that these people were deliberately flouting the law. And, you know, I find this to be really dicey in Tulsa, right, which is the site of one of the worst racial massacres in our country. The whole reason for the Tulsa, it is called the Tulsa Race Riot. How do you teach that if you don't talk about why the white people burn down Black Wall Street without getting in trouble with the law. And so we're just at a point in our world um, where these right-wing folks um, are literally, and we talk about curtailing accurate historical teaching, but this is far more dangerous than that. This is not just about what's being taught. You know, once 
school districts start getting downgraded in their accreditation. That affects budgets, that affects all kinds of things. And it's not lost on me that the most diverse school district in one of the most diverse school districts in the state of Oklahoma now is in trouble and can't teach because of this bill and because this one teacher um, made a complaint. And so add to that, you know, the Florida law, which allows military folks to teach without a credential, um, add to that um, these two mega donors in Texas who have been pushing a right-wing agenda who are very clear about their desire to dismantle public education, add to that people pushing for prayer in schools again, add to that, um, I don't know, there was one other thing I can't remember. Oh, Arizona, where you don't even need a bachelor's degree to teach anymore. And I just can't help, but I, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know if people are connecting the dots, but there is a full frontal assault on traditional public education um, by a group of people who want to keep folks ignorant about what is happening, about what has happened and what is going to happen. And this is, I, I mean, our democracy was already imperiled, but you look at, you know, what the Soviets are doing, what the Russia, I guess they're called Russia now, um, is doing in the Ukraine. And we're doing it to ourselves here, y'all. Um, y'all better lock up your women and children because it's about to be on. I'll say, you know, in, in thinking of the news that you had a week ago about the military families in Florida being able to just teach, my sister, who's a principal, she and I were talking yesterday and she was like, Duray, I can't believe the families in Florida. I was like, yeah, we covered it on the podcast. She was like, I saw it on TikTok too. She was like, some teachers was talking about, they would sit next to a wife of somebody in the military who like was like, what what is phonics? Explain to me. She's like, what am I going to do as a principal with some people who like don't even know basics? And and that made me think of that. But the second thing, yeah, and I think about, you know, when we talk about the attack on public education, there are a lot of people, definitely people listen to the pie who are like, that's wrong, that's wild, but also aren't organized. Like there's not a vessel for them to organize. And I'll just say, I just voted in Baltimore. We're going to have a, um, we're going to have two elected members of the school board and I'm against elected school boards because I've seen them in action and nightmare, nightmare, but it's coming in Baltimore and it's here. So I'm like, so I get to the booth and I realize I just don't know enough about these people. I'm like, it's, I don't know, 10 people. Like, I'm like, and I'm, this is my work. I care about it. And I'm like out of the loop. And I can only imagine if I don't know, then what the average voter knows about any of this stuff, right? And I think about just in, in, in Baltimore, where I was super involved. I worked in the school system. Did it, it still was like, wow, I only know, I know why we don't have air conditioners in every building or why we can't afford heaters and da da but we really do need to start the, the the basic organizing around some of this stuff so that we can get people engaged who aren't engaged. Because the only people, the city doesn't, the city right now, we are getting real people running. But in a lot of these elections, you get like the wild, wild west. These racist governors are appointing really crazy people on these boards. Uh, and our kids are the ones who suffer because their kids don't even go to these schools. I would just say on the Tulsa piece, Tulsa, Tulsa, Tulsa. So Tulsa has the highest Black maternal mortality rate in the country. So we know Black women die four, to four times as much as white women, 
four to one with the same symptoms, but in Tulsa, it's even significantly higher than that. So I bring that up to say that, you know, it makes sense to me that, you know, our, our humanizing our children and the history of, of, of so many of the descendants of Tulsa in particular, wouldn't matter to folks in a city where black babies don't matter to folks, black mothers don't matter to folks. So I think it makes sense to me, Kaya, but I think it, it, that doesn't make it more less sad or troubling. Um, it's a, it's a crisis. I think this is a crisis in our country. I think, you know, it, it stems from how we, how we discount and devalue black bodies, black families, black mothers, black babies. Um, and this is just an extension of that. The, like the story is so ridiculous. And when I think about it further, it makes me wonder like, what's the, hmm, like what, like when, like when, when does it stop? Like the, to me, even like the law, as you were like talking about it, it's so vague about things that make you feel uncomfortable or make you feel like you're to blame or whatever. I'm like, if you're a history teacher doing history right and you're white, you probably should feel a little guilty, a little uncomfortable. That's probably about the right feeling. Certain discourse around history should make a white person feel, even if you're just talking about it objectively. Um, and then to think that, like, in order to, like, talk about, like, implicit bias and just make sure that you're not perpetuating that, so you could lose your accreditation. I'm like, what, what, or, or get downgrading your accreditation. It really feels like a, a slippery, I mean, the slope is slippery and we are obviously sliding, but it feels really, I guess just, like, poign- poignantly, I, I, I'm trying not to use too of it, too extreme of a word. Uh, I don't want to be too dramatic about it, but it feels it, it gets really scary when you're able to control education like that with such vague language, and that it's already being implemented. It gets really scary when you're able to do that, and you when you see it happen. That's what I'll say. My news is about nursing homes. I honestly had no clue this was a thing. So it was reported in NPR, and the title is Nursing Homes Are Suing Friends and Family to Collect on Patients' Bills. So just to start off, this is illegal, but people don't know. So when people pass away who live in nursing homes, uh, what what is happening is that if you are not legally responsible for them, but you're like a friend, a cousin, family, or a neighbor, and you go sign them into the nursing home, they will put clauses in the admissions paperwork that essentially says that you are responsible financially for them, for their bills, or you become a responsible party. And it's buried in the small print in these things, but it's really wild. So there are these stories of family, of friends, family members, like no legal responsibility for people in nursing homes who are suddenly saddled with up to $100,000 of debt from the nursing homes. And as you can imagine, most of the people impacted by this are poor. So when they get a bill for $10,000 or $7,000 or $5,000, they actually can't afford a lawyer to litigate this. So, you know, the article goes on to talk about a big chunk of these are default because the person doesn't come to court or doesn't reply, you know, or the person just doesn't know how to maneuver the system. And if they had lawyers, they would likely be able to get out of most of these because there is federal legislation that makes this illegal. 
but again, most people just get caught up in it and you see the way that the, like this is another way that medical debt impacts people's lives in a way that literally I did not know was a thing. And I wanted to bring it here because as you can imagine, black and brown and poor people are the most impacted. And I just, I, it really boggles my mind that you could be like a really good neighbor and go help your neighbor get into a nursing home and then be saddled with their medical bills or, or their debt uh, at the end. So wanted to bring that here because it really blew my mind. Yeah, the scam is real. Like, I don't know. I feel like the, the story is so funny to go from talking about Beyonce and then get like instantly grounded into two of the like biggest, uh, I guess what I have more um, to ask is like more of like a question. What is the right to the people who this is happening to since it is illegal? Like what can, how is that being addressed? They can litigate, they can defend themselves in court. They can, yeah, they can defend themselves in court. But some people will just plead out, you know, like people plead yeah. crimes all the time. So they like plead because right. like, they think that they're responsible. You're like, ah! Right, right, right. Yeah, that's all I had to add. I'm just, I'm just soaking that one in, child. What's so outrageous, I mean, first of all, nursing homes, I mean, that is all, we could have a whole conversation about that. Um, what they charge people, how they make you, they make the person literally give up all of their assets in order to come. And the whole thing is a little crazy. Um, But like, the thing is, this is illegal, right? And yet, and still, they're like, look, we're gonna give it a shot. And the courts are like, oh, well, the person didn't show up. And so you get the money. In New York City, most people are $400 away from being yanked into poverty, according to the Robin Hood um, Foundation and a bunch of research that they've done. So when you get a $10,000 bill or a $7,000 bill that you don't have any, you, I mean, you first of all, you can't afford a lawyer, let alone a $10,000 bill. And so it seems crazy to me that somebody can perpetuate a legal fraud and an illegal thing can perpetuate a fraud and use our legal system to enable them to collect on it when the whole thing is illegal. How does that work? And how come, I don't know, somebody, how come the Justice Department isn't going after these people the way you go after predatory mortgage lenders or all of these other folks? Like, this is outrageous. This is so crazy. People who are not even, you know, who don't have any any responsibility, any financial responsibility. This is disgusting is what it is. And these nursing homes and the the people who are filing these lawsuits should rot, you know, somewhere in the bowels of wherever. It's disgusting. This is terrible. Don't go anywhere. More Politic the People's coming. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. This week, we welcome author Professor Robin Kelly on to chat about his book, Freedom Dreams, The Black Radical Imagination. Now, 
I had known Professor Kelly's essays, but did not know his books until I was preparing for the podcast. And this book in particular was just incredible. Fascinating book about Black migration, reparations, feminist theory, so much more. And I learned. Hope that you learned too. Here we go. Professor Kelly, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I'm excited to talk to you because I think about um, all of the things I wish I'd read uh, while we were in the streets in 2014 and 15 and 16. <laughs> and I did not know your work then. I was, you know, we were doing a lot of other things. And then I started to read your work. And I'm like, whew, I wish I'd read this when I was getting to you guys. So I wish I'd known these histories and da da da. And we're here to talk about the, the latest book coming out. But um, I'd love to start with a little bit about you. And what brought you to this field of study of Black people, of movements? Mm -hmm. How did you get here? Well, that's a good question. First of all, I'm an old person. (laughs) And um, I have lived through so many cycles of these struggles and watched with great pride as people, especially I know that you you, you emerge, especially around Ferguson in that, that rebellion, which it's a Amazing to think that's like eight years ago, right? But, you know, I grew up in Harlem and in California in the 60s, in early 70s, came of political age really in the 19, late 70s and 80s. So you got to realize that um, this is, you know, being a child of the 60s, having lived in Harlem as a kid and heard soapbox speakers on the corner witnessed the Black Panther Free Breakfast Program, seen the prospects of revolution in the streets and in the homes and in the schools, um, struggles for community control of education, things like that. I mean, that's the world I grew up in as a small child. And moving out to California in the late 70s and seeing the the downside, you know, what what was lost in that moment, that revolutionary moment of the late 60s, early 70s, and to see, you know, PCP, to see the later, later in the 80s, the emergence of crack cocaine, the, the collapse of social organizations and movements, at least that's what it appeared to be. And so by the time I get to college at Long Beach State University, which is a state university, back in the days when we actually had public institutions where the, the fees were $90 a semester, <laughs> I know it's hard to believe, right? I got this amazing education in Black studies uh, from various activists, you know, who really kind of took me under their wing and also in history. And um, and through my sister, especially my older sister, Makani Temba, who is the founder of PraxisProject.org, longtime organizer who really tutored me uh, and my mother, you know, wanted to try to understand and spend my life devoted to understanding the way that unsung people, ordinary people, working class people made history, defended themselves, created institutions to survive and refused to accept the terms of white supremacy and capitalism, you know? Um, And so that's really my my roots in that connection to African-American history with an understanding of the broader world, reading people like Walter Rodney, understanding you know how Europe underdeveloped Africa, and also becoming at that time something of a Marxist to try to understand the class dimensions 
um, and the gender dimensions of our oppression and our struggle, that shaped the work I was doing. You know, at the time, uh, in my early scholarship, my early activism. One of the things that you do in the in the new forward to the book, or the Aja does, and then you talk about later, and that is woven throughout the history, is you help us understand sort of the key players and the people who did the things and, and all those things. One of the, this is a push to understand, not a push to challenge. One of the things that I'd love to hear you talk about, and one of the things that I have, one of the things that I've not loved about the historian, so you're one of the few historians mm-hmm. of Black history that I have on the, I have a lot of people on the pod about other things, but you actually <laughs> right. study movements and stuff like that, is that I really worry, Professor Kelly, about the way that we don't tell history of like the everyday people who did the crazy mm-hmm. thing that led to the thing. So right. my the thing that I wanted to ask you about is that even in the way that I saw you contextualize this moment is that I know all the, yeah, I was there, we were in the street, it was wild. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you that like all of the big organizing collectives, they came to Ferguson, none of them were helpful, right? It was like, they put us in a one one big organizer group came and they were like, we're getting tear gassed. And they're like, let us show you how to power map. And we're like, they're tear gassing. The power map literally doesn't matter, right? They're like tear gassing us. Mm-hmm. And I think about having lived through that, it was that that like even the best of us organizer organizer who became organized, like none of us were trained. We were just out there. Mm-hmm. Um, there was like a spontaneity in the streets that was really, that was more powerful than any meeting we ever had. Mm-hmm. And I'm interested in how we honored that too. Right, right. Well, you know, there's, of course, there are always organizations, especially in the 21st century, that are, um, that helicopter, that parachute in, you know, and these are organizations, there's always organizations that have, uh, that depend on, on funders. You know, um, that's not our tradition. That's not our long tradition. But then, you know, when you think about what happened in, in Ferguson, St. Louis, you know, you entered into a space that had a history. You know, it's not like everyone who was out there had never organized before. I mean, someone like Tef Pope, for example, had been trained with the Organization for Black Struggle. You know, and Organization for Black Struggle is celebrating at least 40 years of existence in St. Louis. You know, Jamala Rogers. And Jamala, of course, was one of the organizers of the um, uh, uh, Black Radical Congress. So, it's not as if there are not traditions that exist before that. That's distinct from people who are trying to use, you know, newfangled language with back, with, with you know, backing from funders. So I'm not saying that spontaneity doesn't matter, but there's a reason why people came out into the streets. It wasn't just because of Michael Brown. It was because of all the Michael Browns that pre that preceded that moment. It's for all the people who've been driving around from uh, municipality to municipality, being stopped by the police, being ticketed, and being and having their wealth extracted from them by these municipalities and by the police. You know, it's that that experience of having to pay fines for having overgrown lawns or for not, you know, uh, for having expired uh, uh, license plates, right? You know, this kind of stuff, the, com- the accumulation of those things produce both the anger, but also the discourse, all the conversations that people have. So I don't, I don't disagree with you that there's a lot of things that were not helpful at all. And in fact, one of the arguments, I remember when I was there in, in October, 
2014. It was a big split between people who were who had been there in the streets, tired, not being supported, versus those people who were professional organizers who were trying to come and take things over. I mean, I don't I don't dispute that, you know, but I do think that part of the reason I wrote the book Freedom Dreams is to remind uh, people, especially for young people of that generation. Keep in mind, you know, you have Michael Brown in 2014 uh, and Eric Garner and others. In 2000, 1999-2000, you had Amadou Diallo. You know, so in other words, there are certain uh, state-sponsored murders that generate, you know, activism in the streets. And, and Diallo was one of many, of many. And so when people came out, again, there's the presumption that there was nothing like this before, it's all unprecedented, is simply not true. Many people came with experience. Those experiences may not be uh, marked or identified the same way. Um, but we have a very long tradition, a tradition against state violence, a tradition demanding reparations, a tradition of Black feminism um, and against gendered violence and other things. Uh, and a tradition that doesn't always look like the NAACP or the modern civil rights movement as we know it. The problem with historians, with a lot of history, is that we end up revisiting the same movements, same organizations all, all the time without actually looking at what's happening on the ground. Um, and so part of what the book tries to do is talk about those movements that we don't always look at like the Revolutionary Action Movement, for example, uh, Kumbahi River Collective, uh, National Black Feminist Organization, um, and all the movements from uh, in Cobra to Queen Mother Moore uh, in the fight for reparations. The fight for land, you know, is another one that we have struggled not just to confront state power, but to flee, to get away, to get out of Dodge, to try to find some kind of space for ourselves. That goes back to Maronage, Maroon societies going back to the days of the early days of, of enslavement and capture. You know, so we've got to understand that history to recognize that all the people that you ran into in those streets came with a certain kind of knowledge, you know, intellectual capital. You know, and part of that was that people coming together in the streets, in the homes, in community centers. We're producing a theory of revolution <laughs> as you went along. And you know that, right? Because you were there. That it, so part of part of the argument too is that we don't need to turn to some think that that ideas will come out of think tanks, out of you know, people with with a lot of degrees who are just sort of thinking about things. Now I'm not saying that that doesn't matter, but that's not the driver of social theory. The driver of social theory to try to figure out what's next, what kind of world we want to build that comes out of struggle. And that, so what you witness is the tradition, not necessarily a break from it. And what's amazing is that I would argue that that is not the wild part. The, what's wild to me is someone sitting in a room, getting a lot of money, writing up a, a position paper or or like basically in their room tweeting all the time about what should be done. That's wild. <laughs> What's not wild is people coming together to talk about and struggle together to figure out what to do. 
that to me is just rational. <laughs> so I want. Uh, so I read it and I was like, I would love to hear him. I, this was one of the parts of the book that I was like, I don't either. I, you know, this is like a very much probably me not being a great reader. And I was like, I don't understand. I, the words made sense to me, but I was like, I mm. don't. There's a part of it that I just don't get. And I wanted to ask you about it. Uh, it is, on the other hand, the very burden of racism nourished in a capitalist economy built on the foundation of slavery and Jim Crow weighed like mm-hmm. a nightmare on the brains of every generation of white working people seeking emancipation. Remember that much of their identity was bound up not with being a nigger, a savage, and uncivilized beast of burden, presumably easily controlled right. by their capitalist enemies. What I, I didn't, when when you wrote the white left's inability to understand, let alone answer the Negro question, right. I... It was, I'm like, maybe I missed, I missed how you think of the Nero question. Or like, I just missed, I missed it. I like, didn't get it. Okay. So no, that's a good question. So let me, let me go back. So the Negro question is not um, my invention. It is actually a left's invention. So the idea that, and this goes back to the 19th century, that, you know, we're in an international class struggle. And in an international class struggle, especially one that takes off, let's say, in 1848. And then we're talking about sort of European and American working classes who are organized in this international working men's association. This is the first international. So so let's step back for a second. Um, when I talk about race as the Achilles heel, there were leftists, internationalists, not all of them, but many of them, who either ignored the presence of black workers or enslavement, or it's actually impossible to ignore, um, or saw them as either an enemy to working class struggles because slaves are taking jobs from wh- white men who are who are basically um, manless, um, or that, on the other hand, the only position you could take as a working person is to fight for emancipation. Now. I, I'm not, I, I don't want to go through this long, long history, but the idea of the Negro question is how do we understand the class in a context in which you have racial subordination? Racial subordination has material consequences. That is to say, enslaved people, and after slavery formally ends, you have other forms of unfreedom, unfreedom in the terms of sharecropping and tenant farming, unfreedom in terms of uh, being paid lower wages for the same work or being denied certain work. Now, here's the dilemma, is that either the white working class, and I don't want to say it's like a, a unif- unified, uniform, you know, undifferentiated mass of people, um, but the white working class as a class has certain choices to make. One choice is to embrace the whole class. That is every single person, no matter what they look like. If they are working people, if they don't have means of production, if they don't have land to survive on and they have to work for wages, that you embrace the whole class. Or define the class in terms of whiteness. And that has been the dilemma. So when I talk about ways like a nightmare, this this. It, it fundamentally says that racism has been the problem of class 
organization and class struggle. Racism is the fundamental problem. Now, we take that for granted. We say, yes, of course it is. But here's what we've, we've inherited. Of course, I have a long history in the left, and part of that long history is always being told that if only these Black people could be more class conscious, put aside racism for a second, and join the class. <laughs> I'm saying this flipped. You have to flip it. It's that the anti-racism is fundamental on the part of the white working class in order for them to join the class. We're already in the class. We're already there. We've been there. We've been at the forefront. So part of the idea of the Negro question is taking, taking the idea of what has been the internationalist white left using the idea of the Negro question and flipping it around. I'm saying, I put it in quotes because it's, it's like an old conception. Um, and so all I'm basically saying in that section is that if we're going to challenge capitalism, don't blame um, Black solidarity, Latinx solidarity, struggles of Indigenous peoples for not being class conscious. We've been at the forefront. And let's, let's take that example to Ferguson. I mean, Because this is something you know um, and you've seen. Um, a lot of white leftists, some very famous ones, said about Ferguson, well, you know, those young people in the streets, they're not really challenging capitalism, right? That's not true because the structure of violence in St. Louis and not just cities like St. Louis or North County, but all over the country has been one in which the police play a role of extracting you know, value in subjugating people. So if the if the municipality of Ferguson is making two or three, you know, million dollars off of poor people by ticketing them to death and then, you know, citing them and putting them in jail and taking away their kids and their property, you know, as a way to extract value to keep that municipality going and to paying them less money and not you know, and, and the value of their property is not really going up by virtue of race. All these things are ways in which when people came out on the street to fight the police, they're fighting capitalism directly. They're fighting it directly. They're at the forefront of it. And all the white people who are, who are, not, who are standing on sidelines or not showing up, who are saying, you know, that's, I, I'm, I'm interested in the class struggle, not the race struggle. They don't understand it. So part of that chapter is to insist that, that Black communists have actually had an analysis of class that was far more sophisticated than what we think of as the mainstream Marxist left. That's the argument I'm making. We're at the forefront. I learned a lot about all these historical parts of movement that I just literally didn't. I was like, okay, should have read that a long time ago. There we go, professors professing and teaching. Um, but how, how do you see the internet changing the contours of organizing and movement uh, given that you have studied so so much of historical movement in the absence of the internet? Well, there's positive and negative, like anything. Um, the positive, obviously, is the speed and scope of communication. You know, you could reach people faster. I mean, people can mobilize faster. Um, ideas could circulate quicker. Um, in theory, that's a really good thing. But sometimes it has a downside. Uh, one downside is this notion that internet 
activism is the same thing as organizing. That is to say, some people never have to leave their house because they're uh, signing this petition, they're contacting people this way, they're doing this. And, you know, and there's nothing like actually talking to people. All of our most successful organizing efforts over uh, the last couple centuries um, have involved actual people coming together, uh, connecting with one another, sharing emotions, uh, sharing strategies, being able to read one another, being able to break down and get the comfort of somebody uh, in the space. So there's something about human contact and organizing and being in the streets that really doesn't matter. The other thing, the other downside is that, how could I put it? <laughs> A lot of people are not patient. And there's an impatience with Twitter and Instagram and other things where you want the information or the direction in a very small chunk. And sometimes it requires time, space, reflection, and actually reading. Sometimes it requires debate uh, to come up with stuff. And also, you know, organizations sometimes need internal space to decide what their position is. If the debate is public and it's public and shaped by who, who has the most likes, as if likes determine the value of a position, then we've lost <laughs> completely. We've lost. Um, you know, I come out of a tradition where we used to have something called internal position papers, which were not for circulation at all. They were part of the internal debate. We didn't want to get credit for them. We didn't even always put our names on them. The idea was to have something in print, not in print, but on, on a, as a text to, to basically struggle over so we can get clarity on our ideas. Uh, because in the end, ideas matter. Ideas matter more than Molotov cocktails. You know, you can know how to burn something. You can know how to break something. You can know how to, you could have a bunch of chants, but that's not the thing that drives movements. It's the ideas. It's like, okay, what do we do next? Now, how do we, how do we, it's how do we fight for changes that are not going to tie us up, right? So I'll give you one example. This is a very recent thing, something that's been on my mind, a lot of people's minds. In New York City right now, there is an attempt on the part of people who call themselves abolitionists and progressives to support building what they're calling a feminist jail. That is a jail that has feminist elements to it. Care. <laughs> no. There's no such thing as a feminist jail. I mean, that's um, that's sort of like benign slavery. You know? Um, they don't go together. And yet, this is also, this is what we talk about when we talk about reformist reforms as opposed to non-reformist reforms. You can make jails a little safer. You can improve the food. You know, you can have a birthing center. You can have childcare in the jail, but it's still a jail. And a jail is what we're fighting against. You see? So things like that, that's, that's where Twitter could be good to let people know you need to, to basically oppose this thing. But it's not the space we need 
to create the kind of deeper understanding of like what kind of reforms do we fight for that might actually end up tightening the noose. We can't know that. We can think it through, but it requires deep analytical thinking. And and I have to say, you know, part of the, the argument that I make in, in Freedom Dreams is that that kind of deep analytical thinking is not the province solely of people who are formal intellectuals. In fact, sometimes those um, trained and traditional intellectuals are the problem, not the solution. We all have the capacity from the time we can speak in sentences, like five years old, up until we're 100 years old, irrespective of our background, the capacity to think through these things together. But no one can think about them in isolation, right? We can debate these things together and figure out how to go forward because there's a leap between saying, and, and you know, again, you know this, you live through this. You could begin by saying, well, we need body cameras. And then it's like, <laughs> no, that doesn't work. All it does is capture more images for us to circulate. Okay, then what do we need next? Oh, we need to demilitarize. You know, well, okay, that might be the case. But the problem is, it's not just the hardware. It's what police do and how they're trained. Um, it's uh, Eventually, we get to the point where, by 2020, it's very clear to everyone that I know that we don't need the police. We need to defund the police through a process of replacing police with something else. That's a process of debate and struggle, you know, of really thinking through the contradictions. And that means, again, ideas really do matter. And that's where the internet is a great source, but also could be the death knell. Because I have to say, you know, the, the same source that we can circulate ideas is the same source that circulates a lot of misinformation and lies uh, and myths that are, that are so dangerous. I can't, I don't even know what to say, you know. There are a couple questions that we ask everybody, and I could talk to you for a long time, because <laughs> even with the book, I was like, didn't know this. I was like, I get it. Um, is what do you say to people who are like, they did all the things, right? Read your book, mm-hmm. read mine, went to class, listened to the podcast, voted, stood in the street. And they're like, the world hasn't changed, right? They're like, I did all the things I was told to do, and we're still where I started, essentially. What do you say to those people? See, I don't think that's true. I think I think the world is always changing, you know? Um, but but I think there, there are two things to consider. One, we have inherited a liberal framework for understanding how the world works. And we need and to when you say liberal, can liberal, you I'm telling you what liberal means. Okay, tell yeah. us all. Le- so, let's, so liberal is not antithetical to capitalism or colonialism. Liberalism is a foundation for capitalism and colonialism. Liberalism basically means that it's a kind of laissez-faire, that is to say, a free market ideology that essentially believes, and I'm going to be very specific in terms of the United States, U.S. liberalism, that America was founded essentially as a good place, that there's a creed. Even Dr. King believed this idea of the creed, and I reject that, that, that America was built on this creed, this liberal creed of democracy, 
participation. The Constitution is this great document, despite the fact that it was written by slaveholders, you know, uh, and that what we're doing, and this is Obama too, I disagree with him on this, that the arc of the moral universe just automatically bends towards justice. Um, it's just, it takes time. And so the problem with the liberal teleology or liberal understanding of how history works is that when we don't see changes that are like dramatic, we, we say, well, nothing's changed. Or we say, or we're told it just takes time. The assumption is that there's always going to be progress, but that's the mistake. There's not always progress. There's only struggle. There's only struggle. There's only determination. There's not optimism or pessimism. Those two terms don't even work. Even hope doesn't work that well. But what does work is determination. So what happens is that when we win something, we get pushback. So what we don't see is what we actually do achieve and that that achievement is generates, I wouldn't call it backlash. It's just the forces against us, arrayed against us. And so, you know, there would, now you know this, there would be no 26 million people in the streets had it not been for the mobilization around Ferguson, had it not been for the mobilization around Trayvon Martin, had it not been for the mobilization that, that, that led to the Baltimore uprising, right? All these different things created the conditions for a movement that is actually with us today. If I, you know, you know that if 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 I would just list all the organizations that emerged over, since 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 2013, we'd be here for three hours, right? Some of them are small, some of them are big, but for the most part, they exist. The problem is, is that when you wage war, you're gonna get war. And that's what we've been witnessing. The the Capitol Rebellion of January 6th was I would argue, a counter-revolution to what happened spring 2020. Specifically, because who's out there? It's not the white working class out there. This is the police state that's out there. Police officers, military, entrepreneurs, and professional alt-right people, right? So the fact is they're terrified. The attacks on, on critical race theory, they're ter- these are all responses. They're all reactions to movement. So clearly we have power. But we don't, you don't, but if we expect to win like the movies, you know, we watch too many movies, like you're victorious and you're on the mountaintop and yes, you know, it's like we're rocky. That's not how history works. It is two steps forward, one step back. It is constant, constant struggle and determination. And we've created space for a new generation uh, to think about these things differently. Think about how the language has changed. Think about how the language around gender has changed dramatically. All these attacks on transgender people, you know, is in response to the fact that we have won in terms of the social and cultural debate about being human in ways that the most reactionary white supremacists and masculinist patriarchal forces cannot tolerate. We keep winning, and that is the problem. But winning can't be defined as a great, glorious victory. Winning is this constant struggle to survive 
And as Audre Lorde said, you know, we were not expected to survive. And, and yet these people are terribly afraid of us. What do you think all that militarization and all this, the, the expansion of state violence is all about? You know, it's like Otis Madison says, you know, the, the late Otis Madison, the great political scientist, he said racism wasn't invented for, for Black people, it was invented for white people to convince them that somehow they have a benefit that doesn't even translate into money, right, for them. All these poor white people who love, who, who all they have is their white skin privilege, which is not even a privilege for a lot of them. For Black people, as Otis Madison says, guns and tanks are sufficient, right? That is the reality we have. And you, that's why we have guns and tanks. We, why do we have a Second Amendment? A Second Amendment was to create militias to keep down indigenous people and, in, and formerly in, in, in enslaved people, African people. That's why we have militias. That's why we have a Second Amendment. Right. That's why these people are armed. That's why America has more guns than any other place because of us. <laughs> so if you don't think we're winning, you know, I don't know. It's just that we we're we're up against a monster and that monster is going to have to be brought down, but it's not going to be brought down tomorrow. And the last question is, um, what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? Wow, that's a really hard question because I've gotten so much advice. Well, you know, the, my mother is this, the smartest person I know. And I write about her in the introduction. And I would say my mother really believed in the beloved community. She didn't use that language. But I have to say, I believe in the capacity of every single person to change. And my politics and I know I get in trouble for this, especially from the Afro-pessimists, they get mad at me about this, um, is that we really have to love. And to love is not to be wishy-washy. It's not to necessarily to kind of forgive people for their crimes and stuff. To love is to be able to step outside ourselves, not in an empathetic way, but in a way of solidarity, to say, I'm a fight for you. I don't care what you call me. I don't care what word you use against me. I'm gonna still fight for you because, you know, we can have a better world, and we have to. And and to me, that's the best advice my my mom's ever gave. It's just, you know, you take care. You take care of everybody around the world. You don't care who they are. You don't care what they say to you. You don't care if they. They don't have to love you back. You still love. Shout out to mom, and I I love in the book how you talk about her focus on imagination and the future. Um, how do people stay in touch with you? How do should we do you follow you on Twitter? Do you follow you on Facebook? Is it <laughs> I know you write for the Boston Review? Like how do people stay in touch with you? God, I'm not I got off Twitter. Um yeah, how do people get in touch? Well, you know, or how do people follow your work? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I I you know, I just yeah, you, you I mean, I could be people could email me at, at UCLA. I mean, the the fact of the matter is that I'm again, I'm old school. Um, my work is out there. Um, I don't necessarily, I'm not really on social media. I have a Facebook page that my sister runs. Um, I didn't even know the, I didn't even know how to work it. <laughs> you know? So I'm, I'm, my stuff is out there publicly, you know, um, what I would really prefer is not people to follow my work, but my hope and wish is that read everything. Just, tell people, read everything, read, be informed, 
engage. If, it, if my stuff comes up, great. But I don't really care about that. I care about just knowledge. And I'm surrounded by tons of smart people around this planet, many of whom don't have college degrees. And, and these are the people who will be our teachers. Boom. Well, we consider you a friend of the pod and can't wait to have you back. Thank you, DeRay. Really appreciate it. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning into Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we will see you next week. Pod Save the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by AJ Moultre and mixed by Veronica Simonetti and executive produced by me. Special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Miles Johnson. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers.